This is our last week in the New Testament book of Philippians. So, I hope you found yourself invigorated by the hope that's found in Jesus, as well as confronted by our need to trust in Him in greater ways. So what I want to do as we begin this morning is I want to take a few minutes just to kind of recap where we've been in the series to give a little longer summary of where we've been. So Paul began, Paul's the author of the book, and he began this book by reflecting on the significant partnership that he shares with the church in Philippi. Paul is deeply thankful. He feels affection for this church. He was vitally involved in the planting or the beginning, the establishing of this church. And at that time, it led to his imprisonment. And those intense experiences bonded Paul to these people. But Paul again finds himself in prison as he's writing this letter to his friends in Philippi. And he wants them to know that though he finds himself in prison again, that his imprisonment is for Christ. That despite his circumstances that seem destitute in many ways, the gospel will advance. The good news of Jesus is going forward despite this reality. And, and this is kind of how things happen a lot of times in the Christian life. The gospel advances at those times when we expect it not to. Where we look at our circumstances and we think, man, there is nothing good that can come out of this. And yet, that are, those are the times often when the gospel is advancing the most in our hearts or through our lives. And this is just the pattern of the gospel. It turns things upside down. Which is why Paul also says, to die is gain. Paul states clearly, his desire is to depart earth and to go and be with Jesus. Now we don't typically think this way in our everyday lives. We try to avoid dying at all costs. Paul, though, states that he prefers it. But he admits that God has more for him to do here on earth. So rather than going and being with Jesus, he's going to stay. He's going to set aside his preferences so that others might be served, might hear of Jesus, and Jesus might be made much of through his life. And all of this then is flowing from the picture we get of Jesus in Philippians Two, in order for Paul to have this perspective, there has to be a radical transformation that has occurred inside of him. For him to say, like, to die is gain. And this all is coming from the picture we get of Jesus. Jesus, we find, set aside his divine capacities, what makes him God, and he becomes a servant to people. He serves humanity, those who sin against him, Ultimately, those who killed him, he comes to serve those people. People like us. That's who Jesus has come to earth to save. But Jesus is not just a servant. He doesn't just come underneath people and care for them in this way. He's also a king. So he's a servant, a lowly servant, but he's also a king who possesses more power, more authority than anyone or anything in this world. And so this picture of Jesus that we get is of a servant king. And it's so important that we see both polar opposites or maybe complementary parts here. He is a servant and he is the ultimate king. With this picture then of the one who saves us, 
Paul instructs his readers to work out their salvation in their everyday lives. Not to work for their salvation, but to work out what Jesus has done in the practical parts of their lives, the nitty-gritty aspects of their lives. So whether it's work, or it's home, or it's hobbies, or it's relationships, we work out what Jesus has done for us. And as Jesus is the one, then, who gives good gifts, ultimately the good gift of salvation, but many other lesser good gifts as well, Paul remarks how a man named Epaphroditus was sent to him in prison from Philippi with a gift. So the people, the church in Philippi, sent this gift to Paul as he's in prison. As humanity is prone to think highly of ourselves and boast about what we have accomplished, Paul says clearly, as he writes to the church in Philippi, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Rather, put your confidence in Jesus. So don't put confidence in what you can do. Put all of your confidence in what Jesus has done for you already. And then Paul is made aware of conflict in the church of Philippi. And what he does is he points to Jesus. Jesus is the one who reconciles sinners to himself. And so he talks to these women who are in conflict in the church in Philippi. And he says to them, look at Jesus, be reminded of how he reconciles you to himself, and use that as your basis, your foundation for reconciling your conflict with one another. And then throughout this book, I've come back to this theme, but Paul is relentless in affirming that belief in Jesus leads us into joy. Belief in Jesus leads us into joy. And if the man who is living in prison can affirm this, we can surely learn from his example and listen to him. Joy is possible in every circumstance. This is what we talked about last week. Joy is possible in every circumstance. What seems impossible to us is not impossible with God. So no matter what life throws at us, we are able to find contentment if our hope is placed in something greater than our circumstances. And that greater thing is a person, and it is Jesus. So Paul repeatedly calls us as readers of this letter to put our hope in Jesus and reminds us that is where true hope and joy is ultimately found. And so now we come to the end of this book that is full of encouragement and joy. Let me read the last number of verses that we're going to be looking at today. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you for these verses. Thank you for this book. I pray that as we wrap this up this morning, that we would be struck by your grace, that we would be reminded that your goodness, your kindness, is far greater than anyone or anything else. Help us to see the beauty of grace. I pray that you would change us, transform us through grace. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so as we end this study in Philippians, I want to highlight how this book ends in the same way that it began. So I've got two examples here that I want to point to. First of all, the second verse of this book said, Grace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last verse of the book says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, Paul oftentimes wrote this way. He would begin talking about grace, and he would end talking about grace. And Paul wrote basically two-thirds of the New Testament. So this is common for him, but even the fact that it's common should cause us not to just read over this practice that he has. This is intentional. Everything conveyed in this letter is done with the intention of giving grace to the readers. Okay, that's what Paul wants to be clear. He wants to give them grace. Now, grace, by definition, is an undeserved gift. Okay? Grace is most clearly seen in Jesus dying on a cross for our sins. In saving humanity, Jesus does everything. There's nothing that we do. There's nothing that we add to what Jesus has done for us. Jesus does everything in saving us. And grace then is the foundation of the Christian faith. It is the heart of the message that Jesus taught. And this is why it becomes so confusing when maybe we go to church and we hear a pastor tell us week after week all of the things that we should be doing better. Or maybe when a church just simply lacks grace. There's conflict, there's infighting, there's gossip. We are given an undeserved gift from Jesus. He loved us when we hated him. Maybe not consciously, maybe not explicitly, but just by not trusting him, we hate him. He loved us when we did that. He invites us in when we rejected him, when we sinned against him. He doesn't walk up to us and just slap us and say, get my name out of your mouth any of you know what I'm referring to from this past Sunday and what happened at an award show. He, he doesn't do that to us. He says, I have a better way. It's marked by joy and contentment, not grumbling. Jesus gently, patiently shows us a better way. Paul, in his own life, has experienced grace in a profound way. Paul was a, was a man who was a murderer of Christians. Jesus comes to him, and he says, why are you persecuting me? This is what Paul was about, what he had given his life to. And so this is a man who understands grace. And so it's no surprise that his message then is dripping with grace that is full of Jesus. Okay. So grace 
And then the second thing here is referring to partnership in the gospel. So 1.5, Paul referred to or speaks of your partnership in the gospel with him. And then near the end here in 4.15, he talks about entering into partnership with me. So what Paul's doing here is he's expressing a depth of connection with the Philippians. And this is evident throughout the book of Philippians. The gospel binds people together. Grace is stronger than blood. Grace creates a dynamic where people can share vulnerably, where sin can be confessed with one another, where hurts can be shared. Grace causes people to sacrifice for one another. The gospel is not news that creates surfacy relationships. Okay, so what happens here on a Sunday morning is not about disinterested people passing by each other for an hour each week, like two ships passing each other in the dark of night. That's not what happens here on a Sunday morning. Believing what Jesus says about himself and about us unites us together. It creates a family. This is how the Bible talks about Jesus' church. We are intended to be a family. Brothers and sisters united in Jesus. United by Jesus' blood. And so it causes us to move towards one another. To view each other as partners. Possessing a common goal with one another. Gospel advancement in us and in this world. That, that's our common goal. To see the gospel held high, believed, and then advancing through our lives. And the Philippians demonstrated this. Paul states in verse 14 that they shared his trouble. Okay, so it wasn't just that the Philippians were aware of Paul's trouble. They knew it, yes. But then they engaged to an extent where they shared his trouble. They took it upon themselves. And and is this not a beautiful embodiment of what Jesus does on the cross for us? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So what this is saying is that Jesus knew no sin whatsoever. He didn't sin in any way, which means he wasn't guilty of committing sin like we are. He knew about sin. He saw the the carnage that sin wrought in this world and in people, but Jesus was not responsible for the doing of sin. He was innocent, but he didn't remain that way. What this says is he took on our sin, and not only did he take it on, it says he became sin. Jesus actually became the epitome of sin. He became sin itself. And so then for our purposes and what we're talking about here, Jesus took on sin and all of its resulting trouble. Sin is the reason that you're troubled every single day. That's why you feel troubled, experience trouble in your everyday lives. This world is broken. I think we all know this. But the reason it's broken is because of sin. Sin has fractured everything in this world. 
So flat tires, addiction, death, cancer, skin to knees, fatigue, lack of friends, depression. Sin is so pervasive in this world that we are affected by things even when it's not a direct result of our sin, right? At times, our trouble is because we have sinned. Many times it's because other people have sinned against us or just because sin is part of this reality that we live in. We're troubled for many reasons, sometimes because of our sin, sometimes because of the sin of others. But the reality is this world is broken by sin. But the gospel picture is Jesus then takes on our sin, takes on our trouble. And this is what John 16.33 says. It says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is one of the things that I, why I love the Bible. So this is Jesus talking. Okay, Jesus doesn't try and rally a group of people to follow him by telling them the things that they want to hear. He says, point blank, in this world you will have trouble. He doesn't hide it. What he's actually doing is he's helping make sense of our existence. In this world you will have trouble. But then he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Those things that create trouble for you, I have come to address those things. And in addressing them, I'm overcoming them. I'm defeating them. I am claiming victory over them. And then he says that all these things that he's saying, he's saying so that people will have peace. I I love this reality. He's not telling you you'll have trouble so that you'll stress out, so that it multiplies your trouble. He's telling you this so that you would be filled with peace, so that when trouble comes, and it will come, that you're not caught off guard. You're not wondering where God is, what he's doing. Gospel or partners in the gospel demonstrate the gospel as we take on the troubles of others. As we share their suffering with them. And let's be honest, we prefer to avoid trouble. All of us do. Trouble is inconvenient. Trouble is heavy. Trouble is hard. It requires sacrifice to love someone in this way. To take on their trouble. It requires from you what you don't want to give. But this is why it's so meaningful. This is why taking on others' trouble is so necessary. Because it amplifies what Jesus has done. How Jesus has taken our trouble. And every time that we take on someone else's trouble, we show care, we show concern, we laugh with them, we cry with them, we are embodying this ultimate reality of how Jesus left everything that was comfortable, everything that was glorious, and he entered into our mess. He took on our trouble 
Not to remain distant, but to be near and to demonstrate, to show us, to remind us every time we feel that trouble. He says, I am near to you. I am with you in this. And so by taking on the trouble of others, we remind ourselves, we remind the one in trouble, the one feeling it, and others watching how Jesus has done this for us in an ultimate way. Another aspect related to Paul's comments on partnership here is in regard to the giving and receiving of gifts. Paul has been moved by the kindness of the church in Philippi. And a couple of quick comments I want to make on this. Paul uses the phrase, giving and receiving. So Paul is struck by the kindness extended to him by the church in Philippi. Now, Paul would not be struck in the same way if this church was known for taking. It's the fact that they're giving and they're receiving. And this picture is stark. They are known for taking not the good things, right? But trouble from Paul. And then giving the good things to Paul, in this case, a gift of money, a gift of their presence. So Jesus takes sin and evil from us and gives us righteousness. That's what that verse we read just a little bit ago, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, talks about. Jesus takes our sin, becomes sin, and then gives us his righteousness. He makes us right. And this is what we're seeing in the Philippians as well. They're taking Paul's trouble and giving their money, giving of their time, giving of themselves to him. And this is what the gospel is all about, right? God gives us good gifts and takes evil, takes sin from us. It's a beautiful picture. In verse 17, Paul then states explicitly that he was not seeking the gift from the Philippians simply for the sake of enjoying that good gift, the good thing that they were giving. Ultimately, he longed for the gift to be given from them to him because it demonstrated their faith in Jesus. What Paul is saying is, I sought the gift, I sought the good thing you were giving to me because it results in good for you. It displays the quality of your faith in Jesus. It verifies that you are trusting in Jesus and not in things, not in money. Instead of hoarding it for yourself, you're giving it to me. And this ties back to what Paul mentioned in chapter 2. Work out your own salvation. This is not working for your salvation. This is working out. This is how faith in Jesus is worked out in real life. Jesus does everything. He approves us when we are sinners, when we're doing nothing that would merit his kindness. He acts in kindness towards us, saves us. And then because we are approved in him, not because we need to earn approval, but because he's already approved us, then we're free to give good gifts, to extend grace, to love and serve others, like the church in Philippi was doing with Paul. And this type of faith-filled living doesn't earn salvation, but it says here, what Paul's talking about, that it's pleasing to God. 
Because in this, it's not about making the Philippians look good. It's not about them patting themselves on the back. It displays the beauty of grace. And in this equation, everyone wins. Their faith in Jesus is expressed. They're giving sacrificially to Paul. Paul is blessed by the gift that's being given to him. He then is able to speak affirmation about the Philippians as well. And so everyone is, wi- is winning in this equation. Lastly, we read in verse 19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I want to talk about this verse because I'm guessing this verse might trip some of us up. We might look at the trouble in our lives or maybe the trouble we've experienced in our lives or maybe in the lives of others and we wonder if God sees or understands the needs present in our lives. We might wonder a question like this. If God knows about my troubles, if God cares about my troubles, wouldn't he do something about it? Wouldn't he fix it? Wouldn't he address it in the way I want him to? So I want to come at this, looking at this verse through the lens of the life of Paul. He's the one that's writing this verse, that's stating it, and so it's best to understand the context from which he's writing. We know Paul is writing this letter from prison, right? And he is imprisoned for uh, unjust reasons, all right? But maybe we can get over this reality because Paul states that his imprisonment is for Christ. This is what he said back in chapter 1. And so we might think, well, people are hearing about Jesus, right, and it, as he's spending time in prison, so then it's worth it. We, we can kind of get over that hump a little bit. But what about those circumstances in life where we wonder if anything beneficial is coming from our trouble or from our hardship, from our suffering? Because many of us have probably been in that spot. Or at least we can look at others and we can wonder what good can come of this. Paul had one of these instances in his own life. He was troubled in a way that caused him to ask God to remove the trouble. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote about a thorn in his flesh. Okay, we, we don't know exactly what this is. Many people have postulated, oh, it's this or it's that, but we don't know exactly what he's referring to here. But clearly there is some sort of physical affliction that Paul experienced here. So he suffered. And we can look at Paul's life and we can see that he suffered in many other ways physically as well. But this was a specific item that he referred to. And, and so Paul then, he goes on to write, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So, so he feels this thorn in his flesh, and he wonders, like, what good is it? And so he pleads with God, would you take this away from me? And the response from Jesus was this, my grace is sufficient 
for you. This is the primary provision that God gives to us as followers of Jesus. As Paul writes, God will supply every need of yours to the church in Philippi. He is speaking primarily of grace. This is how he knows that God will supply their needs, is through the gift of grace. All of our troubles, and there are many, are reminders of our greatest trouble. And our greatest trouble is sin. That's everybody's greatest trouble. All of God's gifts to us, and there are many, are reminders of God's greatest gift to us, which is grace. There is no greater gift that God will ever give to you. Not a promotion, not a certain salary level, not a big house or bigger house, the greatest gift God can and will give to you is grace. God may not provide us what we want or what we think we need, but he will provide us what we truly need. Tim Keller, I didn't put this on a, on a slide, but Tim Keller, pastor from New York, He's written this. He said, God will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. Let me read that again. God will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. We don't know everything. We don't see everything from God's perspective. And this is why it's called faith. We have to trust him. And we have to get in line with Paul as he writes these words. And as Jesus says, grace is sufficient. Grace is sufficient. As followers of Jesus, the call is for us to believe this. Whether it's for the first time or it's for the thousandth time. Day after day after day, the call is to believe that Jesus' grace is sufficient for whatever our troubles are today. I've got one point of gospel application for us today as we close. Jesus has shared your trouble, is sharing your trouble, and will share your trouble. I think it's so easy in the midst of our trouble to sense that God is distant from us. And I think all of you have probably felt that to some degree in your own life. To think that he's unaware. Or maybe that he doesn't care about what you're going through. And what the Bible teaches over and over is he does. He does. This is what Jesus coming, leaving heaven, coming to earth, screams at us. He cares about your trouble. Often we need reminders that Jesus came to resolve our greatest trouble. And it's not the list of troubles I listed earlier. It's not that he doesn't, it's not that Jesus doesn't care. 
about whatever you're walking through today or involve himself in the troubles of this world. And if we can look at his life on earth, he healed people. He loved people. He was a friend to people. But his coming to earth was primarily to address our greatest trouble, sin. And this then informs how we view the rest of the troubles that we encounter in life. When we understand what Jesus has done on the cross, forgiving our sin and setting us free from it, our whole perspective towards all of our other troubles can change. The troubles of this world are painful. And I don't want to minimize that. The troubles of this world are painful, but they are not permanent. Painful, yes. Permanent, no. The gospel provides us perspective with this. It allows us to be content when the world around us is going to hell. We can still look at Jesus and we can see He has good. He is good. Not that we don't care about all that's going on around us, but we can believe Jesus does care. Not that we view Him as not caring, but we can believe that He does care and that ultimately He is going to set things right. He has overcome the world through His life, death, and resurrection. And through this, He screams, His grace is enough. It is sufficient. Jesus is enough. And in this vein, Paul writes in another book, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, what kind of themes that have been evident throughout the book of Philippians. I want to end with this verse from 2 Corinthians. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul can look at all of the troubles of this world that he has encountered, that he will encounter, and he says, if it is for the sake of Christ, I can find contentment. Though my body is wasting away, though others might be laughing at me, though I might be excluded, though my body might fall apart, I can find contentment in and through Jesus. So when we find ourselves in trouble, the troubles of this world, and we feel the weakness that Paul speaks of here, that's a good place to be. Because when we, in our humanity, in our physical reality, are weak, that is when it's most easy to rely upon Jesus as strong. He is our strength. His grace is sufficient. Jesus is enough.